You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Daniel Ellsberg, who after earning his PhD from economics from Harvard, became a strategic analyst at the RAND Corporation and consultant to the Department of Defense and White House, specializing in problems of the command and control of nuclear weapons, nuclear war plans, and crisis decision-making. In 1961, he drafted the guidance from Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara to the Joint Chiefs of Staff on the operational plans for general nuclear war. After a stint at DOD and State, he returned to RAN in 1967 and worked on the top secret study of U.S. decision-making in Vietnam, which later came to be known as the Pentagon Papers. In 1969, he photocopied the 7,000-page study and gave it to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. In 1971, he gave it to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and 17 other newspapers. His trial on 12 felony counts posing a possible sentence of 115 years was dismissed in 1973 on grounds of governmental misconduct against him, which led to the convictions of several White House aides and figured in the impeachment proceedings against President Nixon. He's the author of several books. The latest is The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Welcome, Mr. Ellsberg, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Thank you for the opportunity. So I, my, my first question is really a straightforward question because this information has been in your head for several decades. So why did you decide to write this book now? I actually wrote quite a bit of it right after the war based on transcripts of briefings I'd given to my lawyers as to what come, might come up in the trial. And that's really the first section of this book is my involvement with nuclear command and control and war planning. And I actually submitted that to my publisher in 1975, that's a long time ago, um, right after the war ended. And I had the intent, essentially, to do that. In fact, as we'll probably come into, I'd intended to release the information even earlier. But uh, the reaction of that publisher was the same as that of many publishers over the year. We can't, the years, we can't sell that. We'd sell 1,400 copies. (laughs) 
And I said, well, that's all right with me. Uh, it'll be one for every member of Congress. I wanted to inform them, as I do now, actually. But uh, she said, no, that means we don't publish it. And in fact, that's been true in the 90s, first part of this century. And in fact, 17 publishers turned it down for commercial reasons uh, before Bloomsbury presciently picked it up. So uh, they've been enthusiastic about it and given a very good presentation of it, I think. So I'm hoping some of the other publishers are feeling we made a mistake. <laughs> well, clearly, I mean, because this book, it's been out for a little while. It's, it's extremely popular. It's very well received. Do you think that Bloomsbury was just ahead of the curve, or is, that, is there an appetite for a book like this now that there might not have been earlier? Well, both of these. There was no question that when Bloomsbury took it and the others had just turned it down, uh, Trump was not on the horizon, and Donald Trump has obviously increased uh, interest exponentially here this year. And in fact, uh, really, the book was delayed by me now uh, a couple times, probably a year and a half or so, by wanting to put other things into it, many, many of which didn't get in the end for space reasons. But uh, the effect was that it came out just at a time that people are rightly very concerned about Trump, and especially about the prospects of war with North Korea. At least they should be very concerned about that. I am. And I think that has a lot to do with the reception of the book. You've, you obviously continue to pay attention to this uh, frequently daily. Uh, I'm assuming you're reading news about nuclear weapons and other things. What what do you think about the nuclear posture review that was just released by the administration? You know, I've only read accounts of it. I haven't read the thing in detail yet. Uh, I've been doing so much work about, about this book, and that's something I have to do. The idea of uh, putting, of lowering the threshold, basically, for using nuclear weapons, including uh, the, the mention, apparently, of nuclear first use by us as a response to cyber warfare, which there's a lot going on in the world today is very disturbing, although I have a suspicion, I haven't seen this spelled out anywhere, that the least insane as, uh, form of that would be an electromagnetic pulse from a high-altitude burst uh, over a country that we had reason to believe, what, I don't know how sure you can be of this, was the cause of some cyber warfare against us. But in general, the idea that we, the, the strongest country in the history of the world, in military terms, uh, still needs to rely on the threat and capability of first use of nuclear weapons is a compelling message to the rest of the world that these first use is legitimate and uh, a possible necessary instrument of foreign policy and military policy. And that's a very, very bad message to be sending. It's for any country taking that position, and that's... Uh, most of, well, most of the uh, nine nations who have nuclear powers and a number of our allies in NATO, uh, it really subtracts you from any campaign against, for, for major reductions in nuclear war weapons, I would say. You know, it's very hard to be a leader in the world uh, against delegitimizing nuclear weapons and against increases in them or acquisition of them when you, like us and the Russians, have thousands of them and clearly intend to use them in the future and rely on threatening their first use. So we have been a leader in the world for decades now, but in the wrong direction. And Russia has joined us in that way and a number of other countries have. So I think the this tendency now in the nuclear posture review, which is a reversal of the declaratory policy, 
of the direction of it of uh, President Obama. Uh, not that he accomplished very much in that direction, but at least he set a, a goal of relying less on nuclear weapons. That is not the goal of this NPR. Let me. I grew up during, or I came of age during the Reagan administration, so I, I'm, I'm of a kind of a middle generation compared to many of our listeners uh, and many people like my parents who were full-fledged in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, but I had a unique experience in that my parents let me stay up late to watch the movie The Day After in 1983, and that really warped my mind and turned me into who I am today. My question, and this is not a kids these days kind of question, but would, could we argue that the generation today that's grown up since the end of the Cold War may not understand the, the risks and, and threat of nuclear weapons as well as their predecessors? Yes and no. On the one hand, they've hardly heard uh, anything about nuclear war at all. If I'm not mistaken, people who were 35 uh, and 40 have hardly heard the words nuclear war, except in connection with, quote, rogue states or with um, terrorists. And uh, until recently, until uh, worry about Iran and then uh, under George W. Bush and then now with Korea. So... They haven't really lived with the, the concern about that, as, as far as I'm aware. Uh, you remind me of one thing here that has hardly been commented on. You saw the movie uh, the day after, which was in 1983. How old were you then? I was seven. Well, just, just old enough, yeah, to yeah. be uh, impressed by that, no doubt. You're probably aware that Reagan was terribly concerned or yeah. worried about that movie. Uh, in fact, I've even read that for most of the day after, he stayed in bed. That he can sort of canceled appointments, and he was very depressed by it. And two things about that movie are really commented on. The first is that uh, 1983 is the year, same year as that movie, the year that a number of scientists, including Carl Sagan and uh, others, Brian Toon, Turco, and some others, revealed, along with the Russian scientist, Tenchikov, that a large-scale nuclear war, just by one party, let alone the retaliation, would, assuming that the targets were in or near cities, which is a very good uh, assumption for our nuclear plans, for the, for the major, quote, options of our nuclear plans, the smoke from those burning cities would be lofted into the stratosphere where it would remain for some time. In those early studies, all they could do with their computer models of the time was to look about one year ahead, but that they, that's, this would absorb the smoke, I'm sorry, the smoke would absorb the sunlight, perhaps 70% of the sunlight for this prolonged period, and kill the harvests. I think the emphasis in 83 was more on the, on the temperature aspect that would freeze rivers and lakes and uh, cause what they called nuclear winter, the dark and the cold for a long time. More recently, when studies have confirmed this phenomenon, that it was even worse than they thought at the time, not better. Uh, the emphasis has been that it will destroy all harvests worldwide, in the southern hemisphere as well as the northern hemisphere. Okay, the effect of that would be starvation of nearly everyone on Earth within months to a year or two at the most, depending on the stores of food that individual nations had. And near extinction, probably not full extinction, which Carl Sagan was concerned about as a, as a real possibility in 83, 
but something near it. A full extinction unlikely because we're so adaptable, and some humans, maybe 1%, uh, would survive in, say, Australia or New Zealand eating fish and mollusks. But most people would starve, and uh, there would be full extinction for nearly all of the larger animals other than humans. What that means is, coming back to the point you made, the day after was on that count alone, and ever since, that's over 30 years ago, 35 years ago, has ignored this phenomenon of what's been called nuclear winter or nuclear famine. So bad, as impressive as the aftermath of the nuclear war was, even in that movie, it was not, it was leaving out what became known that very year uh, of 1983 of the effect of the smoke. Uh, and I have to say, one other thing was, even without the smoke, the movie did greatly underrate the uh, casualties and the uh, the overall effects, other than smoke, of a nuclear war. Right. Frightening as it was, it hardly approached the reality to be expected. Well, I think one thing that's interesting about nuclear winter that you point out in your book and hasn't been said as enough is that we don't necessarily need a full multi-thousand warhead exchange with the Russians, for instance, to cause this kind of nuclear winter. Yeah. Yes, at the time, uh, Carl Sagan conjectured at one calculation that perhaps a thousand cities need to be burning the 100 kilotons and so forth, uh, weapons. It's clear now that very much less than that uh, will cause this, this effect. And what that means is that getting our nuclear arsenal on alert down to 1,500 weapons, say 1,550, uh, and we're above that now, is scarcely significant in terms of this effect. Uh, you still have far more than needed, not that all of them are in cities, but uh, an awful lot of them are very near cities and or in cities. Even if the cities are not targeted per se, as they used to, as they used to be, they used to be listed by name to a large extent. And now, nevertheless, there are targets in the cities: command and control, uh, transportation, air defenses, of various kinds, that assure that most of those cities will burn. At, at my time, and working on the war plans, by the way, in '61, every city over 100,000, and in Russia, in the USSR, was targeted directly, and 80 percent of the cities over. 25,000, and uh, there was a single plan for fighting with Russia that included fighting or destroying China. So no matter how the war started, the cities in China would all be annihilated. Uh, this was, I <laughs> will get into this later, but it was something uh, I sought to change but failed. Yeah, I want to ask you... Looking today, and we'll take a, we'll walk back historically in a minute. But I want to ask you about Congress and the government because it's unlikely to me. And I, I know a lot of members of Congress. You know, despite the caricature, they're all very well educated. Well, most of them are very well educated and very smart. But I don't see that they have a grasp on this issue. And that even includes people. I'm not making fun of Donald Trump. So I don't think Barack Obama fully had a full grasp on this issue. That's probably true. Uh, by the way, it's, it's, I'm sure it's true of Congress, uh, as it is of the, the country at large. And uh, we're talking now uh, not just about the person in the street, but uh, you know the, the academics, people who are relatively uh, knowledgeable, are 
very unknowledgeable about this subject. I'll give you, by the way, one measure I've had over the years. Uh, I will often ask an audience. There have been periods in between when I didn't, but now is one of the periods when I'm asking audiences, as I did before at various times, how many here know the difference between an A-bomb and an H-bomb? Now, Vince, you're telling me that this is uh, you have an audience here that is definitely uh, informed, relatively speaking, and well-known, and probably they do, or a large number of them do. But I can tell you that in relatively well-informed audiences, the people who choose to spend an evening and come to hear me uh, and generally share my views come down to it and are not fans of nuclear weapons, out of an audience of 500 to 1,000, I would expect one, two, three, or four hands to go up. That's it. And uh, usually if you ask, okay, what is the difference? Well, one is larger. Uh, which one? Well, maybe the H-bomb. Uh, very uncertain about this. How much larger? No idea. And the way, for your audience, this is not needed, but I'll just say the way I communicate that is to say that every H-bomb, fusion bomb, thermonuclear bomb, of which the first droppable bomb was tested in '54 requires an A-bomb of the kind that destroyed Nagasaki as a trigger, as a detonator, the percussion cap. And the H-bomb, the early one that was dropped, as you know probably, in 54, was a thousand times more powerful and explosive yield than the Nagasaki bomb that triggered it. And that in turn, by the way, was a thousand times more powerful than the high explosive bombs of World War II. And that's just to give people a sense of the scale here. Well, hardly anybody knows that. And uh, you asked now, come back, how much of anything like that did Obama know? Well, I think he probably could have answered that question. I'll just give a guess. Uh, Trump not, although remember one of his relatives, I think an uncle, did impress him early in life by saying, Enormous, very big. Very, well, that's, that's, that's something. But um, he nevertheless feels compelled, as do all our presidents, including Obama, to threaten first use, to say that it's on the table. The distinction of Obama was he's the only president that I know of who made a real effort over several years during his eight years in office. Is that you or me getting a beat there? But um, he actually wanted serious study, and he favored the idea of no first use, uh, and also of getting rid of our ICBMs, which have been dangerous anachronisms for over half a century. But he was kind of vetoed by his defense secretary, Ash Carter, and by some allies, and he drew back for it. He didn't do it. He's the only one I know who tried. I suspect strongly, more than a suspicion, that no president has been briefed uh, from 83 on, when it was Reagan, in detail, on, or perhaps at all, on the nuclear winter effect of his larger options. Uh, could be wrong on this, but I know that Alan Roebuck and Brian Toon have written that they made a number of efforts to try to brief the White House and the NSC uh, people in the government on this and were rebuffed. In fact, they, could, they had great trouble getting it into print in anything but a scientific journal. So I don't think that the, the presidents have a clue uh, of the implications of nuclear winter. And I think that applies to not only to Trump, but Obama and Hillary Clinton. Let me, let me walk back. She wasn't right. president, but she was secretary of state. Right. Let me walk back to your early career at RAND, because you, you work with 
for those in, in my business, some of the, the biggest names in strategy talk, Herman Kahn, Bernard Brody, Albert Wolstetter, Andy Marshall. Essentially, these are the best and the brightest who came up with these ideas that um, – you know that would kill everyone on Earth. I, and, and no, I pardon me. I oh, you're saying that actually would have had that effect. We weren't aware of nuclear winter, right? Uh, you know, when you mentioned Herman Kahn, uh, who gave me the title of my book, The Doomsday Machine, he more or less invented that title, as far as I know, a conceptual idea for a system that would destroy all life on Earth, not just near extinction. But I think near extinction is close enough to merit the title. And he said at the time, in 1959 and 60, when he was uh, presenting this idea, there is no doomsday machine, and I don't believe one will ever be built. It would be expensive enough, he thought, that it would require a lot of uh, discussion and analysis and research, and that would kill it uh, bureaucratically or politically. He was wrong. It existed at that time, in, as you say, in the plans we were working on critiquing or modifying and uh, it's existed ever since in the, in the capabilities of the systems we have uh, it isn't the cheap one that he had in mind uh, he had in mind something that would uh, probably uh, not need to be carted over to an opposing country like uh, by as by an ICBM or by a, a plane it would be something perhaps buried in this country or in the oceans uh, it didn't have to be transported it would be very large and probably by radioactive effects or tsunamis and various other effects, uh, would do the job of killing people. No, we got an expensive system, but it does the job of killing nearly everyone. What's interesting to me is the idea that even someone like Herman Kahn, who didn't know about nuclear winter, when he writes on thermal nuclear war, which if you haven't read it out there, audience, give yourself a little time and, and then probably a very large bottle of wine, because I think... I don't remember the exact number that he says, but basically his premise is that if the United States loses something like 35 of its largest economic centers in a nuclear war, that's okay because we'll rebuild faster than the Soviets will. And, and these, these are the people that were coming up with strategy during the time. I don't, well, I believe that Herman had little to no influence on actual strategy. He wrote about it, but you know, for in kind of interesting reason. Uh, I don't think he ever actually saw a war plan. Um, he had, well, that's, that's another, he, members of his wife's family were in the Communist Party and raised questions about his getting advanced clearances. He did get acute clearance or kept it eventually for nuclear weapons stuff, which was higher, a higher clearance. But in general, he never, I'm not aware that he ever saw a war plan. Uh, and he, his effect was not direct. Uh, the Air Force basically had had plans like this uh, long before Herman came along, and the surprising thing when I got to see war plans was how close they were to Herman's concepts without, as far as I can see, his having any direct effect on it. He, was, he had talked, of course, to uh, colonels and generals in the Air Force and had absorbed a good deal of uh, what they were saying, a lot of which he was very critical of. Uh, and he wanted more sophisticated plans. And, and I, uh, along with, uh, I was one of those who really tried to modify the plans in some direction uh, apart from what he was hearing, the uh, what he called the wargasm. 
the uh, yep. nuclear orgasm where everything was expended in one vast spasm with no control, no uh, discrimination, uh, nothing in reserve. And uh, he, was, he was critical of that. What I was doing on the plans was not, uh, I wasn't inventing very much at all, if at all, but rather expressing thoughts that were at Rand from people like, as you mentioned, uh, Andy Marshall, and to some extent Herman. And, but more above all, Albert Wolfsfeder and Harry Rowan. And, uh, oh, and Bill Coffin was involved in this. Bernard Brody was a, a key figure here. So I was kind of a channel for some of those ideas to get put directly into the war plan. But as I indicated earlier, just mentioning it, uh, none of those, I think, in the end actually affected much what would the Air Force would have actually done in a war. Are there people around today that are thinking in this way? I mean, do, do those minds exist that have the time to sit back and think about this policy? Because if there are, they haven't changed it a hell of a lot in the last 60 years. No, it's never changed. But, you know, the idea is, as I say, they weren't sitting around at Rand on the other side of the continent uh, dreaming up these ideas. They were really pretty much in the Air Force, uh, in the Pentagon and elsewhere at Offutt in uh, and there were always people who had this idea that the war should not be uh, this all-out, uh, uncontrolled, essentially pre-planned expenditure of, of weapons as fast as possible. Uh, that was the main Air Force drift, reflecting the views of General Curtis LeMay, who had been head of Strategic Air Command for years and then was vice chief and then chief of the Air Force. And his views really dominated certainly while he was in, and are pretty much reflected ever since, partly on the basis of operational realities that uh, the so-called strategists didn't take into account sufficiently. For instance, the extreme vulnerability of the control system, the command yep. system, starting with the command posts in Washington and in Offutt and SAC and elsewhere. Uh, they're so likely to go at the very beginning along with communications channels, that the idea, which sounds better and looks better, of a more controlled war and perhaps limited war uh, and discriminating war are infeasible. It just can't happen in a nuclear war. Uh, you don't have the capability for it. Uh, that applied to what I was doing as well, right. I would say, to my, to my plans. Well, when you combine your book with Eric Schlosser's book, Command and Control, it, it paints a pretty, pretty scary picture and I want to ask you a little bit about that, because some of the decision-making under uncertainty, which I, I believe is the foundation for your Ph.D. dissertation, we're kind of focusing on that, concepts like launch-on warning and, and delegation of launch authority subordinate commanders, these are things that, when you read about them, are terrifying, especially when you think about, you know, when BMUs, when the ballistic missile early warning system was first stood up, it picked up the moon and thought that it was a Soviet attack and, you know, the idea of the, what you explain in this book, the mystery of the letter, the letter that everyone assumed existed that delegated authority yeah. down. That, that to me, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that, that is extraordinary how it just became, it just became believed and understood and almost a knowable thing that this delegation had happened. Well, you know, the, there are no documents on this delegation for the 50s and 60s. Uh, early 60s, at the, uh, from Freedom of Information Act uh, filings by the National Security Archive uh, at George Washington University. And they've been on file there, people can 
for since the late 90s. That's late in the game, 30 years later. But um, even so, it's a, it's a while ago, and uh, and this century as well. They keep coming up with new things, getting up to date a little bit. Although they, I still don't think they have documents on that subject as late as the Nixon administration or later. So still, still, what they have confirmed what I found out myself as a researcher in the Pacific for Commander in Chief Pacific. Um, in Admiral Felt at that time, in 59 and 60, which was that Felt, uh, I learned, I was told, had a letter from Eisenhower that delegated authority to, use, authority to use nuclear weapons or initiate the use under various circumstances, including outage of communications with Washington. Well, in 59 and 60, before we had all the satellites, uh, communications were out part of every day so that meant that during crises like the Kuwait crises in 54, or 55, and again 58, uh, they were, Commander Felt was on his own part of that time. I also learned uh, there were other circumstances it turned out as well, such as presidential incapacitation, uh, which had happened to Eisenhower twice uh, with a, a small stroke and a heart attack. And uh, under certain, you know, we have all these thoughts about who will succeed the president under such circumstances, but um, in circumstances where you think a war is on or, or you're under attack or something, you can't communicate because the president is out of the picture, um, you don't have time to decide who who else is, is in command. And anyway, the general feeling, it turned out, in the Pacific and other nuclear theaters, I learned, was that of SAC, as well as Strategic Air Command, and in Washington, and even of Eisenhower, that the most important thing was to assure that an attack on us, which would either target our control system, or in any case, incapacitated by physical effects, like electromagnetic pulse, uh, EMP, which was known already at that period, that uh, uh, you couldn't allow that to paralyze our retaliation or a reprisal. So you had to delegate. And that's pretty, you can't get away from that. You, you, no nuclear state, I think, that it feels that it might be under attack, uh, can allow itself, there's a funny aspect to this, can allow itself to be paralyzed. I, I say there's a little contradiction in this respect. It's the opponent that needs to be sure that they won't paralyze you with an attack which would encourage them to attack, and especially to attack. Strangely enough, as I tell in the book, in fact, I call it a strange love paradox, as in the movie, uh, where uh, they find out that the Russians have a doomsday machine that they haven't told us that they have a doomsday machine. Well, similarly, uh, Eisenhower had assured, and Kennedy and all the other presidents after him during the Cold War took measures to assure that a Soviet attack specifically on us and our command and control would not paralyze our retaliation. And the logic of that is very compelling. But they didn't tell the Russians. There's no evidence that they ever did. Why not? I mean, you know, what's the point of all this if the, if the Russians are allowed to believe that they might paralyze us? Well, as you say, it's a little scary thought uh, to Americans and to their allies to think in particular that a false alarm or a, a commander as in Strangelove could decide that the time had come to go to war and do it 
without the president. That's rather frightening. And you spare your public that at the cost of sparing, denying the opponent that that knowledge. And really, when you get into this, uh, when I heard you say that you might, readers might, listeners might want to accompany Herman Kahn's on thermonuclear war with a glass of wine. Uh, I think I think wine is not <laughs> to this uh, very stiff drink, uh, something or or ambient or something that really knocks you out uh, for a day is, is more appropriate. And I, I'm, that could be true of my book. Um, I, I, I don't recommend reading it at night with a glass of wine, uh, I'm sure. But um, strong strong coffee maybe to keep you at it. It's it is frightening, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, it remains the case uh, that countries do not rush or, or even do it at all to let their opponents and the world know that there are many fingers on their buttons, or whether they're small or large buttons. Uh, and this applies definitely to North Korea. Um, there is no button, as, as your listeners probably know, on any of these sides, there are phones uh, <coughs> to military commanders or chiefs, like the joint chiefs of the war room. The phones you use, they use phones or computers, computers nowadays, of course, quite a bit. Uh, so uh, the notion of whose button is larger is uh, <laughs> metaphorical, uh, and I would say rather uh, gender-related. Right. But uh, the fact is that we're making plans for decapitating, according to reports, for decapitating the regime of Kim Jong-un, a uh, very, no question, tyrannical, murderous leader. Uh, and as Pence is pointing out during the Olympic Games, uh, you know, a terrible, depraved regime, which we can't talk to at all. Okay, what's the chance that Kim, reading those reports, has uh, allowed it to be the case that an attack on him or his entire regime at Pyongyang or wherever would be paralyzed, would be neutralized by an attack on him. I think that a chance is small to zero. And he almost has uh, certainly made the same kind of arrangements that, for example, Russia did when they heard President Carter, PD-59, and followed by Reagan talking about decapitation. Uh, they instituted a system called perimeter, or colloquially called a dead hand system in Russian, uh, which assured that there would be retaliation if Moscow was hit. hit. And again, they didn't tell us that. That was their greatest secret. Bruce Blair talking to people, including Valerie Verinich, who devised the system during the period of Glasnost in uh, Russia, found this out. And the first people over here could hardly believe it. No, no, the Russians are so focused on central control and political control, they couldn't have allowed that. And yet, not only had they done that, and keep it up to date as a story in Pravda revealed a month into the Trump administration that the perimeter system was being modernized and improved, Khrushchev had done that uh, way back in the Cuban Missile Crisis when, prior to President Kennedy's speech on October 20th, uh, the Politburo Presidium had delegated authority to the local commanders in Cuba to use the nuclear weapons, the tactical nuclear weapons, 
they had there, and not only had they not told us that the weapons were there, but uh, uh, before the speech, they never told us. Right, it wasn't until it's 92, later, right? right? It's later that we found out, again, during Glass Notes, that, that our invading forces, which were being readied at that time, would have faced tactical nuclear weapons that destroy the invasion fleet under commanders who had authority on their own to use them. Uh, on the theory, by the way, by Christoph and the Presidium, that since these tactical weapons, short-range weapons, could not reach Miami, could not reach Florida or Washington, you could just let the local commanders use them. It wouldn't start an all-out war. It would just be a limited war. Right. Very a totally fat-headed, crazy uh, belief on the part of Khrushchev and the whole Presidium that when McNamara heard about it, he couldn't believe it. And he said, that's insane, you know, which it was. Uh, you know, kill 100,000 people with nuclear weapons and think that war will remain limited? Uh, you know, it would be a catastrophe. Well, that seems pretty obvious. But reasonably smart, well, more than reasonably smart, Khrushchev was very smart. And other members on the Presidium, some of whom had some misgivings about this. Uh, but nevertheless, they all agreed on it and very well informed of all occurrences and so forth, acting in secret can devise operational plans and plans and aims that are stupid to crazy. And that is not only true of Russia, that is very definitely true of the U.S. and actually every human nation. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, that's what I am most interested in is the fact that when you were working on these programs about 15 to 20 years into the American nuclear, you know, nuclear power, that's about where we are with North Korea now. And you can imagine computers have changed things a little bit, but their command and control is in its, in its nascent stages. And thinking back about some of the stuff you wrote that uh, you, you found out in the Pacific where delegation wasn't just to four-star generals or – Commander-in-Chief Pacific, oh, yeah, right, individual right. pilots. I didn't mention that. They yeah. had, in turn, for the very same reasons of assuring that there would be a, a timely and immediate and reliable response, that uh, Felt had delegated this to lower commanders, like uh, 7th Fleet, and even lower. Uh, there were people in, uh, you, you've read Konsan, Korea, very, very close that's probably fairly close to where they're having the Olympic Games right now. If you look on a map, not far from the DMZ, that uh, a major there believed he had the authority, or he would take the authority in any case, to get his planes off the ground uh, if he thought they might be under attack or somebody else had been under attack, which could have been a result of an accident somewhere. Uh, and he would take them into the air. And, you know, when I asked him, 
And what would they do? Well, they're supposed to circle around, and if they get no positive signal to go ahead, a definite order to go ahead, they're supposed to come back. And when I asked him, yes, and what do you think would actually happen? He said, oh, I think they'd come back, most of them. And I was thinking, you think they'd come back? And this is the man in charge of their training and of everything else. And then he went on, having said most of them, to say reflectively, well, of course, if one of them went ahead, they might as well all go. And that part is pretty close to the truth. Uh, yes, it's, this war is not going to be limited. You probably also were struck in that uh, book by Save Count by the fact that when SAC uh, went off, and the planes in the Pacific were given a positive order to go ahead, that as in the movie, Dr. Strangelove, there was no authenticated way to get them back. There was no stop order. Uh, once they were on the way, uh, there was no way to stop them, even if the war, even if the other side wanted to surrender, or some horrible mistake had been made, as they discovered, that was it. Uh, in other words, the movie, Dr. Strangelove, which I do encourage people to see again and again, uh, is, a, uh, is a documentary. Right. All that could have happened. Well, there's an, I think there's an important distinction that needs to be made between authority to launch nuclear weapons and the ability to do so. Because Very well said, uh, Vince, and I, that's right on track here. Yes, I've been talking about authorized uh, results, which is far more delegated, and I'm sure in other countries as well than people imagine. But um, then there's the unauthorized ability, just can you get the thing off? And I, I say in my day, in, in the late 50s and early 60s, there were no locks on these weapons. There was not what they call permissive action links that uh, prevent you uh, without getting a combination, in effect, without getting a code that would enable you to send off that weapon. That didn't exist. So everybody in control of a weapon, uh, you know, launching it, or uh, flying with it or whatnot, had the ability to go ahead and, uh, and drop it or and explode it. Now, one of my major goals, uh, along with other people like Marv Stern and some others, was to get, and, and some people at Rand who'd given me the idea, was to get locks on as many weapons and as high up as possible. Not for reasons I've given. You can't really do what the public thinks occurs, that the president alone has codes to unlock these weapons uh, for the reason that a single shot or a weapon of Washington would then keep all the weapons locked. And that's not actually, that's not as terrible a situation as people might think at first, but you don't want your opponents to think that that is the case or even to suspect that that's the case. Uh, but anyway, it isn't the case. Um, the, the ability is now not only distributed to uh, four-star and other theater commanders uh, and even to their immediate subordinates. Uh, it's, there are locks on weapons, but the ability to unlock those things is held at a much lower level and a far more distributed level than people can imagine. So there are, in fact, I think probably in every nuclear state, uh, that may not be true. We don't know much about the command and control of some of these others. But looking at the biggest ones in particular, like Russia, uh, that's not true at all. There are a lot of fingers on those buttons. Let me, let me bring this to a, a bit of an intelligence question. because I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. 
Do you think we're better off today when it comes to things like launch on warning and delegation of authority and even things like broader strategies with more advanced intelligence, with technology that allows us to have less false alarms, to have better warning? You know, uh, we have a better perspective on the capabilities of North Koreans because of underground sensors. Has intelligence changed the, the complexion since the 1960s? There's contradictory changes. Yeah. Uh, for example, the Russian warning system has deteriorated very significantly because of the loss of East Europe in their system and, and warning systems that were posed there, and some others. Uh, apparently, they're allegedly, reportedly, their systems are really in very poor repair. And that means, by the way, that the possibility of false alarms is in Russia is greater than it used to be. Um, on our side, we have a lot more satellite and reliable intelligence of various kinds. Um, that has not prevented uh, you know, major false alarms, as in uh, 1980, I believe, when somebody put a training tape into the operational system that absolutely simulated, simulated a complicated Russian attack and uh, led to com some command planes taking off, others being alerted, and so forth. It was found sufficiently early to prevent retaliation. On launch on warning, uh, especially with missiles, well, on launch on warning, as you know, the planes from early on, and uh, my mentor, Albert Wolfetter, always claimed some real role on this, uh, whether or not that was the case, was were under positive control where the planes would take off uh, on ambiguous warning, but you had a procedure that was supposed to ensure that uh, unless that was confirmed, uh, they would they would come back. As I've just told you, in Kunsan, which was perhaps the closest to communist territory of any base in the world, uh, the major there showed that that was not a reliable procedure, even in his mind or, or the pilots. But anyway, the, the idea was there. For missiles, which can't be called back, uh, the uh, by the way, it would be possible to put a destruct uh, mechanism, uh, electronic system, in a missile, as they do on test cases, on test launches, and you could have that in every missile, actually. But in terms of people's weighing of odds, the uh, the fear of complicating the system and leading to unreliability and so forth. As far as I know, they've never put that in an operational missile on any side, though they could. So the missiles that they're launched are on the way. And uh, the Air Force and the NSC have always chosen to be very ambiguous uh, about whether launch on warning is an actual policy or uh, just a potential, and to be negative on the potential, say we don't rely on launch on warning. The people who've been closer to the operations of those systems, like Bruce Blair, who was a Minuteman control officer and has followed this in detail ever since, and uh, one of the sources uh, quoted by Eric Schlosser, for example, have always said that that's just not the case, that launch on warning uh, has always been the reigning uh, operational idea, that you did not wait, as McNamara sometimes said, until weapons had exploded. Uh, they call that now launch under attack. Anyway, but none of the Air Force people liked that idea at all, that uh, 
the only weapons they could get off were weapons that had survived an actual the arrival of actual warheads. So uh, the actual training and mindset and preparation, I think, have generally been for launch-on warning. Uh, and that has made our missile force, our intercontinental ballistic force, now Minuteman missiles, very dangerous. True on the Russian side as well. There have been many false alarms, and that really, and moreover, the weapons themselves are vulnerable. That's again part of what you raised. The intelligence has gotten very much better than it was at first on both sides, especially ours, but not only. And uh, so the weapons can be targeted, and the weapons on both sides are increasingly precise. And Ted Postal and Hans Christensen and others have recently published the fact that they have new super fuses on weapons that make even our Trident two warheads on Trident submarines capable of very precise um, uh, destruction of hard targets, made them hard target killers like the ICBMs. But the ICBMs, in other words, on both sides are highly vulnerable. Uh, that doesn't mean you're really going to get all of them operationally. And above all, you can't get most of the submarine-launched missiles. Uh, we do have hunter-killer submarines. We have uh, underwater surveillance to a certain degree. But generally, we will not destroy in a war enough sub-launched missiles on the Soviet side, on the Russian side now, or they ours. Well, that's what you... To prevent the destruction of our own society, of the attacker society, which is to say that all this effort on damage limitation, counterforce, uh, decapitation, all of that has been essentially fraudulent or a hoax or a wish dream with no basis in reality for over half a century since the Russians got a significant number of SLBMs. Um, it's simply first strike doesn't make that much difference from second strike. In fact, no difference at all when you figure nuclear winter into the case. The attacker society on a large war is going to starve to death, whether it goes first or second. So, and yet that's where most of the money is spent, on weapons capable of a first strike, which has no military merit, whatever. And that is uh, almost, almost surely true, too, of launch on warning. Um, they keep, there's, there's so much pressure by arms control people and in the Pentagon for uh, avoiding launch on warning that I read from that that we still have launch on warning and that the people inside feel, some of them feel urgently that that has to change. Uh, I think it hasn't been changed in a word. Well, I was in Hawaii last week and they got a, week, a wake up call two weeks ago about how, how frightening a, a false alarm warning could possibly be. I was there two days afterwards, so everyone was still talking about it and uh, letting us know where they were. It was pretty extraordinary. But I, I, in, a, in a purely practical sense, it's hard to see an easy solution to this because of the parochial interests involved. Because getting rid of ICBMs and, and bomber-based missiles, the Air Force will never go for that. And, well, I, I don't, by the way, I'm not sure that's the case, okay. uh, really. That used to be true. Uh, they certainly oppose it. Uh, but, you know, I think the major opposition, amazingly enough, is coming not from the Air Force, but from 
uh, the senators in lightly populated states like North Dakota, where right. the uh, where the whistles are are based, and they, they call there for hot alert around the clock, seven days a week, because that means more people there, more jobs. Uh, and uh, I don't know more real estate dealers, uh, restaurant owners, whatever. It's insane. Uh, it's like keeping Auschwitz in running order uh, in case you might need it eventually. But really, for the local jobs that it provides, uh, it's it's a form of uh, national insanity, which unfortunately is not peculiar to our nation. So, I mean, with that being said, is there is there a legitimate solution to this, or is it going to be? Well, I think no. I think that if this uh, if this were more known generally, and of course my book hopes to contribute to that, I do think it's within the it's not it's less impossible than some of the other things I aim at in my activist career here to think of getting rid of the ICBMs. As I say, we had a president who actually was in favor of that. Uh, he didn't get it thanks to Ash Carter, his defense secretary, uh, and others. But uh, I think the uh, fact that William J. Perry, former Secretary of Defense, actually, amazingly enough, the mentor of Ash Carter, uh, but has strongly, not uh, strongly come out for getting rid of the ICBMs, uh, an interesting question why he was not able to convince his, his uh, protege, really, Ash Carter, over a period of many years of this, uh, with the president on his side, so that shows the, uh, the resistance to making changes here. I don't think the major, I, I don't know as much about this as I wish I did, but I think the major resistance was not from the Air Force in this case. They, they are having lots of uh, explosives to set off now without right. nuclear weapons and without uh, the ICBMs. And I don't think they're totally committed to that. The Navy, Again, uh, with the SLBMs, which were making them into first strike weapons against ICBMs, uh, to what effect exactly? You know, if they're used, that will not prevent nuclear winter, will not prevent even destruction of our society without the smoke. So, but anyway, it's a, well, I think we're talking in all these cases of the military-industrial complex. Uh, Boeing and Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and the others who are competing to rebuild a new form, I should say, to build a new form of ICBM, not only unnecessary but dangerous to the world, uh, but it's profits and yeah. jobs and campaign contributions and uh, to both Congress and uh, White House uh, candidates. Uh, I think that's the obstacle we're facing, and I think if people knew more about that, uh, and certainly my book alone is not going to do that, but if, if there were more awareness of that, one could counter the political influence of the so-called ICBM caucus, which consists of eight senators who have, I, I should say, six senators who have ICBMs in their states, plus two in Utah where they refurbish them, and two in Louisiana, ten, where there's a uh, bomber base with nuclear weapons. Now you've got ten senators there. Uh, and with nobody really opposing them, except a handful of senators who, well, uh, another 10, but uh, it's not enough to uh, to oppose these ICBMs. That, I think, is the kind of thing I believe you can politically uh, think of 
dismantling the doomsday machine. Very, it's, is it likely we'll achieve that? In other words, destroy the capability to destroy life on Earth by uh, a, a, a smoke from a major attack? It's actually unlikely, very unlikely. But I think it's not impossible. Uh, and that's what I'm aiming at in particular. And you said, what would be you know, a more sane approach? I don't think you could make, you can make a case. Uh, advisors to Kim Jong-un certainly have no difficulty without being ideological learning of making a case that it will help to preserve their tyrannical, murderous regime and the lives of the elites there, including Kim Jong-un, if they had what they seem to have, 10 to 20 nuclear weapons. That's what the Federation of American Science estimates. Might be up to 60, but 10 to 20. Uh, you can make a very strong case for that. Uh, and I think the objective, obviously they find it compelling. And I think the bargaining objective of getting them to get rid of those 10 to 20 is absolutely hopeless right. with this regime or any regime that really wants to uh, be independent of the U.S., let's say, and uh, uh, to stay in power. But certainly this regime, facing invasion, facing decapitation, and so forth. You can't make a compelling case for any country to have more than that. And they all do. All the other eight nuclear powers all do have much more than that. Uh, and I would say, you were saying what, what would be a more, I think I heard you say, a more sane approach would be where, on the interim, to a new world in which there was enough trust and verification and uh, delegitimation of war as an instrument of policy and reduction in fear of invasion or attack, that you could abolish nuclear weapons. And I really do think that given the possibility of reinventing nuclear weapons, if, even if they were abolished, you, you do if you want humanity to survive, not just North Korea. If you want humanity and civilization, the world of cities to survive, the aim should be essentially the ending of war, but definitely the abolition of nuclear weapons. But on the way to that, without drastic radical change in the world order or disorder, I do think you can delegitimize doomsday machines. Right. I, you know, I, you hear me, I hear myself laughing or chuckling sometimes during this conversation. It might seem odd, but it's the kind of laughter you get while watching the movie. Uh, Strangelove, Dr. Strangelove. In other words, it's a kind of slightly hysterical, desperate laughter at the craziness of this. And I think, you know, I have the absolute highest respect for you described as your teacher, David Ellen Rosenberg, for whom we owe knowledge of most of these plans. But given his relation to the Navy, which allowed him to learn these things, I don't think it really was possible for him to in disclosing these plans, and he did more of that than anybody else, to mention, by the way, that what he's describing are insane preparations yeah. for destroying life. Crazy, stupid uh, in every respect, but we really don't have language to discuss either the ethics or the prudence or, you know, or the rationality of maintaining systems for destroying life on Earth. You can't make a case for that. The real case that keeps it going 
is, to a very large extent, the profits, the jobs, and, you know, building these weapons. And that's been true ever since. And it's true in Russia today, where now, in the capitalist system, they make profits on these weapons, just as we do, in addition to the bureaucratic motives they've had all along. Well, those are reasons that drive uh, programs. But they're not good reasons. They're not adequate. They're not other than insane. Well, that's what I think about when... I think that point has some chance of actually getting rid of these, these capabilities. Well, I think that with the argument about getting down to global zero is everyone's, oh, it's, the pro- it's too big. It's the genie's way out of the bottle. So let's just not do anything. But that will always be the argument unless you start making steps towards finally getting down to that level. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see <laughs> whether that <laughs> argument will overpower the institutional yeah. pressures for keeping on our course, which I see as the course of the Titanic uh, going full speed on a dark night into iceberg waters. Uh, the Titanic could have changed course. Other ships in that vicinity did change course or stopped dead in the water. We haven't. We're going full speed ahead like the Titanic. But I do hope that uh, still manned by humans who made the device, who did all this, and in this case made the icebergs as well, uh, could, can change. <laughs> and I hope that programs like this will serve a purpose in that direction. I, if you permit me, I just want to do a, a wrap-up question. And, and I think because this is the International Spy Museum podcast, my listeners will be uh, pretty mad at me if I don't ask you uh, the, the person who released the Pentagon Papers about whistleblowing. And I think that we, we've had a lot of conversations uh, about the difference between whistleblowers and leakers. And I, I was wondering if you would weigh in on this, because the line, depending on who you ask, is in a different place. Do you have an opinion on the difference between the two? Or is there one? No, certainly. Uh, first, you could say a leaker is anybody who puts out uh, classified material, stuff that's been marked secret, confidential, top secret, or higher uh, than that. There are many cold words higher than that. And uh, strictly speaking, uh, the word leaker applies simply to uh, putting it not necessarily classified. You know, uh, it could be information that is withheld in the housing department or whatever that the bosses don't want out or want held closer, even though they don't have classification. But it's mainly, we're talking now about people who are, oh, and and of course, people in corporate uh, situations where the internal information is not to be put out and people have signed non-disclosure agreements um, are described as as leaking, even though classification is not not, uh, involved. But Basically, it's somebody who uh, violates, or in the broadest sense, violates the regulations regarding protected information uh, classified. Now, in that broad sense, leaks occur every hour of every day, and, you know, in multitude forms. Generally, in ways that support uh, the agency of the person putting it out, the bosses, the department, uh, or broad, more broadly, the program, the government program, and it may be the White House. Uh, a good deal of what is leaked actually uh, 
that makes the White House mad, the president mad, or other other agencies mad, serves the purposes of the particular agency and is with pretty much without risk. In other words, some authority in there higher than the leaker uh, is approving or benefits from that leak. It might be just against another agency or the budget. And uh, thus has essentially no risk to the job. The, the boss will generally protect the person who leaks that. And the boss herself or himself, used to be all men, now sometimes it's a woman, uh, will, uh, will put that out themselves. That's what most leaks are. Uh, by an enormous amount, and they uh, and they are just constant. Now, the whistleblower, I believe, or I would put it, is someone who, without benefit, uh, without thought of benefit to themselves, generally without any benefit to themselves, uh, or perhaps their agency, their department, uh, puts out information that does come under the, the regulations that is critical of uh, or discloses blameworthy uh, aspects of that agency or the government, or uh, that is simply dangerous, uh, involves uh, policies that seem reckless or dangerous or criminal or illegal, Wrong, wrongdoing in effect, uh, not necessarily culpable, could be dangerous or reckless, or uh, in the case, for instance, of Ed Snowden, uh, he was revealing a vast amount of illegal and unconstitutional surveillance of American citizens and other people in the world, uh, which was not illegal necessarily, but he, he opposed, he thought that the people of the world deserved to know, uh, but in the first instance, Americans, <laughs> that they were being widely surveilled against the descriptions of the Fourth Amendment of various laws. So the whistleblower is virtually always doing that at considerable risk of their career, or even their freedom, in some cases even their life, if they are identified. And there's always a risk of being identified, uh, not, not necessarily a very high risk in some cases, but uh, of course Ed Snowden, Chelsea Manning, or I put out information on a scale that made it almost certain, well, or certain, that we would be identified, but on a scale we thought was necessary to put out. Uh, and by the way, uh, whereas it is, I accept this much difference between me and them, which I think is not a critical difference, but uh, it is true that I had read all of the material I put out. It was only 7,000 pages, top secret and I had read all of it. Uh, Chelsea Manning and Ed Snowden put out a lot of information that they hadn't had time to read in detail, or could not have, you know, a vast scale, uh, digitally. But it's often thought mistakenly that they did that indiscriminately, simply dumped out everything they that was available to them. That is the opposite of the truth. I won't take the time to go into it now. I have elsewhere. But uh, in both those cases, they had available to them enormously more information than they put out and at a higher level of classification than they put out. And what they put out was material they thought uh, did not endanger the United States and was for the interest. And, of course, any judgment like that, in 
including mine, could be wrong. Uh, in my case, 40 years or have passed, and no damage has ever been shown. No specific incidents of damage have ever been shown yet about Chelsea Manning's releases, which were eight years ago, and uh, Ed Snowden's, which were five years ago. Uh, many allegations have been made of how damaging their information was, but no specific instances have actually been, been mentioned, uh, including, it would seem, to people on the Intelligence Committee, uh, like Ron Wyden, who have said they, they haven't seen anything like that. So, coming back, uh, there are very few cases where the, the judgment of somebody that information was needed by the public or by Congress so urgently and uh, so uh, importantly that they were willing to risk their whole, whole future career or their freedom or their life. Uh, there have been no instances where people who judge that have been shown to be wrong. Uh, yes, in other words, that's not a judgment that people come very likely to. Right. In fact, on a large scale, very few. I've, I've named three, and it would be a little hard to go beyond that in this country. There's some other, uh, in other countries like Catherine Gunn or Mordecai Vanunu. But, um, and likewise, the, the, the leaks that have been prosecuted, which are here in this country by nine, by Obama, nine of them, compared to three previous cases, of which mine was the first. Um, the, uh, they, these people were, in most cases, had to make plea deals for threatened with much heavier possibilities. Um, I, there isn't a lot of cases where the judgment has been uh, very harmful right. as far as anybody's concerned. Uh, uh, yeah. For instance, Jeff, Jeffrey Sterling right. uh, spent uh, set 30 months in prison. Uh, very questionable that uh, the information he was alleged to put out actually uh, harmed the, the interests of the United States to be out. So the fact is that our secrecy system has had the effect for which it's pretty much intended to have the effect of protecting a tremendous amount of embarrassing information, embarrassing because it reflected criminal or stupid, crazy, or just reckless and dangerous behavior that was otherwise uh, going to be concealed from the public in order to avoid accountability by officials who should have been accountable for it. And that's, that's what the system does to, to a very large extent, not entirely. Are there secrets that deserve uh, protection at the time that they are first classified? Well, a very good expert on that who actually wrote most of the regulations for the Defense Department, William F. Florence, testified in my trial that about 5% of material classified deserved that classification at the time it was first classified. And that after a few years, that went down to about a tenth of that, to half of 1%. Well, out of billions and billions of pages, that's, a lot of, that's still a lot of secrets, one half of 1%. But the system is not, does not overclassify especially when you're looking a few years, uh, material a few years old, by 50% or 60%. No, it's more like 98% or 
And uh, that means that uh, there should be an awful lot more declassification than there is. There should be a lot more people taking the risks of leaking than they are. We than there are. Our democracy would be better. The security of the world would be very much better. And that applies right now. Well, let me let me. Ask, how important is the distinction between what you did and someone like and what Thomas Drake did? Meaning. Actually, going, you went to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thomas Drake went to everybody before right. finally leaking information. And, and people like Manning and Snowden, who did not take any of those steps before they decided to leak. Is that an important distinction? <laughs> it's important in, the, in an ironic sense. Uh, Ed Snowden manages still to be at liberty, though in a country he would much prefer uh, to be out of, Russia. Uh, but uh, he is still at liberty in a way that Chelsea was noting Manning was not for seven years. And he was influenced by the example of Tom Drake yeah. and Chelsea Manning specifically. Uh, he saw that in order to explain what the material he was putting out was, uh, what the acronyms meant, what the whole system worked and so forth, he had to be able to be in touch with newsmen, news personnel working on this. And he couldn't do it in this country. Chelsea Manning showed that. Uh, Tom Drake showed, I think, that the, the chance that going to um, other committees uh, with this information or inspectors generals did nothing other than make him suspect for other leaks that he hadn't actually done. And, you know, uh, more or less bankrupted him. Uh, not literally bankrupt, but uh, destroyed his savings. He had to be, Tom Drake had to be defended by a public defender in the end, having lost, spent all his assets, trying to defend himself, mainly against charges that were not true, Right. Uh, in fact. But he was suspected because he had been revealing such information through channels. But the same was true, by the way, of William Benny and uh, Weeby. Kurt Weeby, yeah. who went through channels and were then suspected of leaks they hadn't even done, and their clearances were withdrawn. Their careers were strongly affected uh, by this. So, uh, actually, Ed Snowden uh, drew, I think, a, a, a correct lesson from that. That to uh, the way to do this, and I, I have to say this right now, that going to the inspector general of your agency or even department is not the way to correct a situation that depends on wrongly withheld information. Um, that mainly makes you a target right. for uh, suspicions of other countries. It pretty much blocks your ability to put out that information. Uh, I'd say the way to do it is to get it to journalists, uh, and I think that is better than just dumping it on the web and getting some other eyes, as Snowden did do, to use their judgment of the other people as to what is newsworthy and what needs to be out and so forth. Um, and uh, I would first go to a place like the New York Times that might actually print documents in some detail. But if they withheld publication, as they did on the NSA surveillance, for over a year, thanks to White House warnings of them that they would, have, that they would be accused of blood on their hands, whether it happened or not, uh, Bill Keller withheld that information for over a year and uh, eventually got it out when Ryzen right. yeah. was about to scoop them with a book. Uh, 
But I think the uh, nowadays, I would say it was a mistake for the sources of that information to wait over a year for the Times to put that out. Uh, they should have, or should have considered at least, going to a source uh, that would would put it out, uh, either other journals uh, or uh, even put it on the web if necessary. If they'd fail to get it out otherwise. Yeah, and it's hard to argue with. I mean, I. I was a proponent of the whistleblower process, but there's an article came out yesterday in the Daily Beast, and for the listeners, it'll be a week ago in the Daily Beast that that just eviscerates the IG system uh, in the intelligence community. Uh, if you if you haven't read it, it's worth taking a look. Out of the 190 cases, only one of them they found in favor of the whistleblower. And, and that took over two years to complete the investigation. And the investigation itself has been shut down. So, <laughs> send me a link to that. Yeah, absolutely. It, but I would like to see that. Yeah, yeah when it's retaliation is still a massive weight, even when the whistleblowing is done legally. It's just people yeah. just can't. You know, do it. The, the so-called whistleblower protection agency is pretty much uh, actually a whistleblower uh, stifling and uh, retaliating system. Well, and the final, the final irony is that the uh, information for this article in the Daily Beast was clearly leaked to them for, for the, <laughs> so they could write the article. So, yeah, I believe that. So uh, our guest today has been Daniel Ellsberg. He is the author of The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. It is a, again, you might want a bottle of vodka or something for this because it's not a book that you're going you're gonna to go to sleep with, with great, wonderful dreams, but it's, it's necessary to read. This is not just a book of history about the 1960s. This is a book of today and the fact that regardless of Democrat or Republican administrations, no one seems to be doing anything differently than they have been since the height of the Cold War. So, Mr. Ellsberg, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today in SpyCast. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Hey, all. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.